This is Lightning Power Lunch with Dave Mishkin and Greg Linelli on Lightning Radio. Those goals are goals we can't give up, and we're playing against good teams. Those are goals that could potentially tie the game. We've got to just dial it in the last 10 minutes. Uh, It doesn't matter what the score is. Let's just uh, play our game, get through it. I think everyone understands when uh, it's going like that. I think we just can't be cheating. We've got to play uh, play our game for the full 60 minutes. Doesn't matter what the uh, what the score is, and I think we'll be we'll be good in the end. I think we for sure like to clean up some things defensively, play a little tighter versus the rush and in D zone where we're not giving up looks or easy looks. So I think any good team, any team that has success, and we're we're a perfect example of it, have had success in the past because we defend well. And uh, that area is probably an area where we uh, got to get better at. Defend. Defend. An area where they need to get better. All right. That's fine. You know, Brandon Hagel there earlier. Yes. And I get that. That was Rob Zettler. It was Rob Zettler. Yeah. He knows a thing or two about defense. Defense. I'm wondering if it's harder, and it is Power Lunch on Lightning Radio, Greg Linelli with you, Dave Mishkin as well. Steve Ersnick is our producer. Hit us up on Twitter if you'd like, at Bolts Radio. Kevin Woodley mm-hmm. is going to be joining us very soon, probably about a half hour. He covers Vancouver. We've had him on before, really detailed when it comes to goaltending. I think, partner, he's probably one of those guys I want to talk to him about when it comes to scoring up in the league. Yeah. What's he seeing from goaltenders? Has it... Are, are, is he just saying that the players are that much better, or has there been you know, maybe a, a bigger dip in the goaltenders coming through in their technique and play? Well, so remember at the start of the year, I told you what I learned at the broadcast meetings in September about last year. That it was the first time in decades, I mean, I think since the 80s or something like that, that scoring went up in each quarter of the season. So scoring was up last year as compared to the year before, but also within last year, scoring increased from the first quarter to the second quarter, from the second quarter to the third quarter, and from the third quarter to the fourth quarter, which is a little contrary to our belief that teams start to lock things down defensively in the second half of the year. That didn't happen last year, at least league-wide in terms of goals being scored and it was the first time that it happened i think since the 80s well guess what this year we just got the halfway mark press release from the nhl and so i guess they're not quite there it's going to be through wednesday they say wednesday so i guess that's next week i don't understand why they have wednesday because today's thursday this is this is this morning this came out. Oh, I'm sorry. This was yesterday. So uh, let's just assume that this happened. So they are saying that the first quarter scoring was at 6.3 and the second quarter 6.4. It went up again. So this is very unusual. In fact, I'm looking at I'm looking at the wrong email here because I was looking at the one they sent yesterday. They sent one this morning for the morning skate, and they said that it did. So basically, what we're looking at. Scoring is up from last year to this year again. And scoring is up in the second quarter as opposed to the first quarter. That is definitely a question for Kevin about, like, 
how much of this is on the goaltending and how much of it is like a systemic thing that the goaltenders are are basically swimming upstream right yep i didn't i didn't explain that very well i'm sorry greg but hopefully you and the, and the listeners understood basically scoring is up and it's continuing to rise <laughs> and why is that and we'll ask kevin he might he might have uh an input when it comes to yeah goaltending i i started by asking and we can go a lot of different directions today on the show and the Lightning do take on Vancouver. I think we touched on it yesterday. Really, I think an opportunity for the Lightning to munch a few points here in a row before they go out road or out out road, out on the road to take on what is it five different starting times each each game. I think Chief yeah, I suppose that that's me, true. I know we're in three different time zones, so all of that is going to be yeah. You've got what a four o'clock game there. You got an eight o'clock. Yeah, eight o'clock Saturday in St. Louis. Four o'clock on Monday. Then you have nine and ten o'clock Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah, and then three o'clock on Saturday in Calgary. Ten and nine, isn't it? Because the Vancouver game. Was it ten? I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember the. I was like, is the Edmonton game starting late? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't remember which game was which. Which right. So those those start times locally are seven o'clock, Vancouver and Edmonton, but Vancouver's three hours behind us and Edmonton's two. That's the one back to back in there. This one, so there's a lot of miles covered and you're switching time zones. That is challenging. But in terms of like getting in at two o'clock in the morning or something like that, I think that's just gonna happen. It's gonna happen in Seattle. When the Lightning leave St. Louis and get to Seattle, but Sunday is is a wide open day. The only time it's going to happen where it would have like an impact on the next game would be the back to back Vancouver and Edmonton. So from that standpoint, I mean we'll see how they do at the end of the five game trip. But two afternoon games in there: Martin Luther King Day, yeah, in Seattle, and then the final game is the Saturday afternoon in Calgary. Well, keep it in mind. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Like it's it's a lot of it's a lot of hop skipping and and jumping all over the place. Right. And you're changing, you know, your watch if you wear a watch, and the players are going to have a little bit of a different routine on a couple of these game days. You know, I I asked. I started to at the beginning when we heard Hagel. And we heard Zettler, which was interesting because, you know, we've talked about the numbers defensively for Tampa Bay this year. And I think over the the last three, since they've had this fantastic run, I think we all can agree that the Lightning have been better collectively defensively. They've been harder to play against. Yes. For a number of different reasons. And I think especially in the playoffs, then you factor the goaltending and you can see why this team continues to be in the upper echelon of, of teams who defend well, especially when you look at the numbers. But I still think a lot of people, and I, I think this is probably more of a blanket statement, but I think the perception of the Lightning still is a you know, really good team that has a lot of firepower, that has Andre Vasilevsky, and then maybe talking about how good they are defensively comes into the equation. Whether you agree with that or not, I, I think there's some truth to that. But I am wondering, in general, teams that do have a lot of firepower, 
elite players at different positions. Partner, are they more prone to having a few more inconsistencies in their game defensively because of how talented they can be up front, maybe the willingness to take some more chances offensively, and that do we have to judge those teams a little differently defensively than a team who's not as talented that has to play with a bit more structure? That's a fair question. I think it is probably more true in the regular season than in the playoffs. Agreed. Agreed. In that a talented team in the playoffs, and I think sometimes they have to learn the hard way, that they need to play basically buttoning up every shirt, right? Like, you got to take the risk out of your game in the playoffs as much as you can. Mistakes are going to happen, but you don't want to gift wrap any mistakes for the other team because the stakes are too high. Right. But, yeah, that's fair. A team that doesn't have as many game breakers might be more focused on the structure part of it and not deviating from that one iota. Yeah, and I I do because I think as we navigate through a regular season and – if there's criticism when it comes to the Lightning, you know, they, they give up too many odd man rushes. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing just some talking points out there. Or they give a, a defender too much space or an offensive player too much space in their own zone. It's not like they haven't done it. And I'm wondering, I, I'm going to answer the question. I, I think we have to look at the regular season a little differently compared to somebody else who's covering a team that typically isn't in the position Tampa Bay is in. Mm-hmm. Because I do think there are lulls. You know, we talk about what is what does a regular season mean for the Lightning? You know, they're, like tonight, they're taking on Vancouver. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Lightning want to play structured. They want to play within themselves. But we know that always doesn't happen in a season. The Lightning, I actually think what makes them difficult to beat is that if they are struggling a bit defensively, they can find ways to beat you 5-4. Now, maybe the coaching staff will immediately come in the next day and talk about what we didn't do defensively. But I do think I'd rather have a team who can turn it on offensively, or I should say who can turn it on defensively when the games really count, but also can win games when they aren't defending as well Right. than somebody else. And I, I just I want to keep that in mind for some people as we continue to to muck along here during the regular season because we're basically halfway through and I think I think the Lightning have been really good. I mean the record indicates that I'm I'm stating the obvious but let's put it this way there's nothing here that really concerns me at, at all when it comes to their defensive play and it's nothing that I would sit there and say I don't think they can't clean up come playoff time. So we'll see how it plays out. You know, of course, tonight they could get into a run and gun game with Vancouver. I just, I don't know if I'm going to be like, I just, I don't think the Lightning are a very good defensive team. I probably won't feel that way. And I think most people need to take a bigger picture approach when it comes to the different ways the Lightning can beat you. But I defensively, 
For a team this talented and who has won as much as they have, partner, the last three years, at times you probably can find the regular season not as interesting. And I think the fact that they've done as well as they have, defended pretty well, you know, they've gotten some really good goaltending, they're scoring a bit. I mean, yeah, it's, it hasn't been perfect, but I, you know, all things considered, I'd that's a pretty good spot. I think the Lightning are a team that when the players put their mind to it, they have the, the structure in place to D up. But there's not one team in the NHL that is just going to do it perfectly night in, night out. So there are teams that I think have more trouble doing it, though. And you can see in the goals against averages, the teams that are near the bottom, in other words, allowing the most goals, they have some something wrong systemically. Either their system, the players are not doing it correctly, or they just don't have the personnel and neither of those applies to the Lightning. Vancouver. Vancouver is tied with Columbus. The two teams the Lightning are seeing during this brief two-game homestand, they enter tonight tied for the second-worst goals against average. You look at Vancouver's goaltenders, their save percentage, other than Colin Delia, who's hardly played, but the other two guys, Thatcher Demko, who's now hurt, and Spencer Martin, who spent a couple of years in the Lightning system, playing in Syracuse primarily, their save percentage is well under 900. So this is a team that is not getting it done defensively. The same could be said about Columbus. The Lightning are not one of those teams. Does that mean that they are going to hold the other team to like one or two every single night? Certainly not. (laughs) They're going to have lulls, as you mentioned. They're going to have points maybe when they hit a little bit of a rough patch you can get into a team slump where things are not quite in sync. But both in terms of the personnel and the system that they play and their commitment to defending when it's there, and usually if they lose a game where they're not happy with how they defended, they self-correct. The Lightning are not a team that you would say can't defend. Certainly not. But I think a lot of teams in the NHL fall into that category, even as we let off the show saying scoring is up. Sure. I think that makes sense. Well, just something to keep in mind. Yeah. As we kind of move forward here. This Vancouver team is, they're an interesting team. Well, I remember we saw them fairly close to the point that Boudreaux took over last year. Boudreaux came in. And they had a really good stretch right after he took over as head coach. Remember that? I do. And the Lightning saw them shortly thereafter, and it was a close game here at Amelie Arena. The Lightning went 4-2. to two, And then the teams met again later in the year in Vancouver, another close game. The Lightning won 2-1. to one. So the two games the Lightning won, but they were both close. I think there was an expectation that Vancouver missed the playoffs last year, but they had gotten off to a bad start. And when they got hot under Boudreaux, They weren't able to turn it around enough. This year has been a disappointment. But what is interesting about the Canucks is, as this year has been a disappointment, and it's probably mostly been in terms of how they are defending, they are having some guys who, I would say, are are producing noteworthy years. Bo Horvat, who is a pending UFA, has 29 goals already this year. 
His career high last year, 31. Yes. He's two goals away from matching his career high in half a season. And on a team that has struggled defensively, Bo Horvat is plus four. Then you got Quinn Hughes, who's one of the, the top offensive defensemen in the NHL. He had 60 assists last year, Greg. He's at a point per game. Sure. He's got 33 points in 36 games. He's plus three. You might say, well, what about the other guys? Well, Elias Pettersson. Pettersson has 48 points in 38 games. He's plus nine. So, like, if I were to say to you, who are the three top guys on Vancouver? Or give me three of the top guys on Vancouver. You might include Brock Besser. You might include JT Miller. Their stats are not as impressive. But I don't think anyone would, like, raise an eyebrow at you if you said Bo Horvat, Quinn Hughes, and Elias Pettersson. Those three guys are having good years by any measure. Really good years. You know who else is having a good year? Luke Shen. Yeah. Luke Shen is playing more with Vancouver than he did with the Lightning when he was used basically as like a 6-7 and the Lightning had so much depth. But Luke is plus 5. Just played his 900th game. That's incredible. On January 3rd. I'm checking his average ice time. So Luke's average ice time per game, 17 minutes, 13 seconds. So Hughes is leading the team, obviously. He plays most of the power play. He's at almost 25 minutes. And then you got Ekman Larson at 20, 27. Tyler Myers is over 20. So it's not like Luke Shen is among like the top guys. But for Luke Shen to be playing 17 minutes tells you how well he's doing, but also... Like, the Canucks don't have the same level of defensive depth that the Lightning had when Luke was here. He's on a pending expiring contract. He might get moved at the deadline. I feel like Luke Shen has had a number of one-year deals recently. Well, he signed a two-year deal with Vancouver after the 2021 Cup. Yes. But you don't think a team might want Luke Shen with a couple of rings? With a Lightning take, Luke Shen? In his back pocket? Heck, yeah. Heck yeah, depends and that's not a would, knock on anybody depends else. Depends what it would cost for them to get sure. him, but his his salary is not no. onerous. I think he's no. at 750. I think that's what and he listen, signed with Vancouver. One thing, one thing the Brian Engblom would always talk about with Luke Shen, Greg, watch him on the penalty kill. He knows exactly where to go, and he creates room for the goaltender in front. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a stick in the back. You're going to get probably a glove to the back of the head. There's some snarl. And look, there is something to having guys like Shen, Maroon, Bogosian just out on the ice. Luke Shen, by the way, is going to be up on the uh, the Block Party nice. podcast coming up. How about that? that yeah, is cool. he and Coburn, I always like Luke he Shen. He and Coburn spent a lot of time together yeah. in the bubble when they were not in the lineup. And then they both got into the lineup when McDonough got hurt. And then Shen stayed in longer than than Kobe did. Yeah. But I think by the time the Lightning got to the Stanley Cup final, it was Bogosian and Ruda, wasn't it? Weren't they? They were both in. Yeah. They both played in the Stanley Cup final. I'm not sure that Luke actually played in the Stanley Cup final. And Coburn, <coughs> excuse me, Coburn at that point was 
was out of the lineup again. So I feel they like had a Luke- lot of along with Spencer Martin. Well, actually, Spencer Martin was the next year. Spencer it was Scott Martin. Wedgwood, wasn't it? Scott Wedgwood, yeah, was the goalie. Yeah, they had a lot of time skating around with like five, six guys in the bubble. Shen and Braden also played in Philly together for several That's true. seasons, and they grew up yep. in the same area too. They were a couple years apart, but they played as young kids together too. I I always like Luke Shen, and I feel like I want to say when the Lightning picked him up, his career was a little bit of a crossroads. Wasn't Absolutely, it? he was playing yeah. in the minors. Was it yeah. Anaheim? Yeah, he was in Anaheim. He was spending yeah. a lot of the that year, the year before the Lightning signed him in San Diego, which was the AHL affiliate. He's he's almost. I think Bogosian's a lot a lot better skater than Shen, and probably better offensively. But in terms of being able to move up and down the lineup, like if you need Shen to be your seventh defenseman, he can do that. But if you need him to play pretty consistently, at least the last couple of years, partner, I think he's he's shown that he can do that. Yes. So he's pretty valuable. I, yeah, listen, I think he would be a, he would be a good acquisition as a depth defenseman yes. for a team with cup aspirations. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And I, I think that was probably maybe where I was headed with that. But the Horvat the Horvat situation is mystifying to me. He's twenty seven years old. He's a captain. He's spent his whole career in Vancouver. There must be something going on there that, that they have not re upped him because he's on an expiring deal. You know what? Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, I haven't listened to them recently. I know last year they, they dedicated a lot of time to Vancouver and Horvat, Besser, even Pedersen, to a lesser extent. Yeah. And there was just a lot of talk about moving them. And I think with Horvat, it was just, I don't know if it's, they just feel like they won't be able to resign him. Maybe that's it. And and maybe you, you try and move on, and, and maybe they've gotten indications that Horvat doesn't want to resign. I mean, that could be the other thing, too. I, I don't know, but you're right. I mean, collectively, when you look at their forwards, partner, I mean, if I were to just sit here and tell you Pedersen, Horvat, Miller, and Besser, let's just start with them. Mm-hmm. That's a, I mean, would you agree? That's a pretty good, yes. pretty good start. I mean, those well, are... They locked up Miller because there was talk for a while that they might move him, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at cap friendly. Miller gets a contract bump next year. How many years did they sign him for? Eight? Seven? Eight. Thank you, Kevin. I was trying to do math in my head, and then Kevin held up That's four fingers. That's never a good idea. I have four to use fingers, fingers on each hand. So okay. Miller is locked up. Besser has two years left after this year, and then he's a UFA. But, I mean, they do have him for a couple more years. Pedersen has one more year, but he's a restricted free agent with arbitration rights. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, theoretically, they could look at at moving either one of those guys, but that's not imminent because they're both under contract for at least next year, if not beyond. And they have some control in the Pedersen situation because he's still restricted. Horvat, that makes no sense to me. And again, we're not seeing him play night in, night out, but here's a guy who can score for you. He's a plus player on a team that's hemorrhaging goals. 
He's one of the best faceoff guys in the league. Not only is he very, very good on faceoffs, they lean on him to take faceoffs. He is regularly one of the top guys in faceoffs taken in the NHL. And you might say, well, why is that important? First of all, if you're taking a lot of faceoffs and your percentage is, is still good and, and more than good, like he's usually in the mid to high 50s, that tells you that you are exceptional at faceoffs. It also tells you if he's taking that many faceoffs, he's winning them not only on a strong side, but on his weak side. He's taking them in all situations, and he does take power play and penalty kill faceoffs. And he's better than anybody else. So, like, key point in the game. Big face-off, who's going out there? Horvat, right? I mean, we talk so much about face-offs. What about this guy's game has a soft underbelly? I'm not certain there there is a soft underbelly. And then, let me go look and, and look at his career numbers here, but I believe the only time that he has gotten a chance to play in the postseason was in the bubble, and in the bubble, Vancouver won its play-in series and then upset St. Louis in the quote-unquote first round and then played Vegas in the second round and gave Vegas everything it could handle. That was when Demko almost stole the series. It may have affected Vegas in the next round. Yeah, so Horvat's right. only time in the postseason other than his rookie year was in the bubble. 17 games, he had 10 goals. This guy is a money player. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe we can ask Kevin about it because he knows the Vancouver situation. I will state plainly, I do not get it. I don't understand why he is not a guy you're centering your team around unless it's simply that they've they've kind of kicked the tires and they know that he's going to be out of their price range. Could be. It very well could be. I also want to ask Kevin. He's going to be joining us here in a couple of minutes. I saw him tweet something out. It was during the Pittsburgh game when Pittsburgh was mounting their comeback, and they ended up winning that game 5-4. They were down 3 nothing right. in the first. And he tweeted something to the extent that <laughs> it's it's basically been a problem all year that the Lightning or the, the Vancouver defensemen continue to screen their goaltenders at, like, the worst possible time. So they're trying Those, to block a shot but not maybe, blocking or, it. Or just maybe skating in the vision of the goaltender when maybe they, they shouldn't. It's one of those nuances that maybe, like, I wouldn't pick up or somebody else wouldn't pick up who's not an expert in that in that field, per se, when it comes to goaltending or just on the back end. That maybe, you know, when you're on the ice and you see somebody uh, – wind up for a slap shot, and if you can't get in the the area to block the shot, maybe what you're told is to stay away so the goaltender can see the puck or never skate across the goaltender's eyes when a shot is about to erupt. I don't know. I, I it was an inter- it was an interesting tidbit mm-hmm. and I, I'm wondering if it's something that he he still believes in strongly because those are some things that I, I think to the the untrained eye maybe you wouldn't necessarily see, but probably can have a huge impact. Yes. Well, he would know, know, and he's watching the team game in, game out. So he would be able to make that assessment. 
But look, he if would. you're if you're tied for thirtieth in goals allowed, you got a whole bunch of problems, and one of those might be, like, to me that's maybe controllable, but it's also a little bit of bad luck, right? Like yeah. the puck is coming and, and the goalie's eyes are taken away. For sure. We'll discuss that with him. We'll take a break. We'll come back because I, I do want to dedicate a little bit more time to the game tonight, what we anticipate when it comes to the Lightning and their game and where they are and, you know, a, a big game in terms of points that are out there on the table for them to potentially get, understanding they are going to be on the road here. He is Dave Michigan. I am Greg Lanelli. Steve Versnick's our producer. Again, hit us up on Twitter. We'll get to some of your questions here in just a little bit. But Kevin Woodley is up next. We'll talk about Vancouver and the Lightning. I want to get his thoughts on the goaltending, as always, and so much more on Lightning Radio. You're listening to Lightning Power Lunch with Dave Mishkin and Greg Linelli. All right, we are back here on Power Lunch on Lightning Radio. Greg Linelli with you, along with radio voice of the Lightning, Dave Mishkin. Steve Versnick's our producer. We're getting you set for Lightning and Canucks, and a man who knows Vancouver as well as anybody. In addition to the goaltender position, we've had him on before. We always enjoy his breakdown. He covers the Canucks on a regular basis. That would be Kevin Woodley. Kevin, first off, buddy, it's great to be with you. And boy, you know, Mish and I were looking at Vancouver's roster. And just for people who don't follow them closely, you look at the forwards and there's a lot of high-end talents there. And I, I guess you could say there's some pretty good talent up and down the lineup, but the record just hasn't been the same. It hasn't reflected the talent. Big picture in general terms, What's what's been the biggest issue? Yeah, they're terrible defensively. Um, there's no other way to put it. Well, I mean, I could find a whole bunch of different ways to put it. <laughs> they're a tire fire defensively. They're a train wreck defensively. They don't actually play defense. Um, they were a bottom third team in the NHL last year in terms of their underlying numbers defensively. And, you know, I'm not talking about public numbers. I have access to ClearSight Analytics data, uh, obviously private proprietary company that a lot of NHL teams use. And, and the Canucks were bottom third, and they were bailed out by especially the second, well, basically after Boudreaux took over the last two-thirds of the season, they were bailed out by Vesna-level goaltending. Like, that's how good Thatcher Demko was um, from that sort of early December right until his last four starts where he was trying to play through an injury that ultimately required surgery in the offseason. Um, he, was, he was in that conversation. Like, his adjusted numbers, because he was behind such a poor defensive environment, were off the charts good. And so, flash forward to this year, they've actually regressed defensively. They are no longer a bottom third team in the NHL defensively. They are a bottom three team. And when it comes to giving up dangerous chances, the most dangerous chances, in the most dangerous situation that would be off the rush, they are dead last in the NHL. I look at Tampa's underlying profile. They're 11th overall, 5-on-5 five five defensively. But against the rush, they're third best in the league. Vancouver is dead last. You combine that with Demko having a slow start um, as he as he was coming back from the surgery and then ultimately re-injuring it uh, in part because he was favoring um, the recovery, the, the part that needed surgery. Uh, in some of his movements, he gets hurt. Now you're into Spencer Martin, who was a great story as a late-season call-up last year. 
Um, but you're asking a guy who was expected to be a backup to be a number one. Colin Delia, who's actually played remarkably since he's come up uh, in a really small sample. Like, you're just asking too much of these guys. The truth is they were asking too much of Thatcher Demko. His numbers were well below expected as well. And so at the end of the day, you have a team with all that talent up front, uh, a defense that has been questioned openly here in Vancouver for several years in terms of is it good enough, and the goaltending didn't hold up behind it. So, um, But I would argue that if your requirement for winning, and let's not forget, as much as they won when Boudreaux came in last year, it still wasn't enough to even be a playoff team, is Vesna-level goaltending, then you probably haven't built a very good team. And that's kind of come home to roost this season. And it's, you know, a lot of the focus will be on the defense. Like the Myers-Oliver-Ekman-Larsen pairing has been a disaster for them, uh, especially over the past three weeks. Um, you know, they brought in Ethan Bear. He's been better. Uh, but just as a group, and it's not even just the defense. Too many forwards on this team don't defend. They don't play in their own end. They don't take care of the front of their net. They don't come back low to provide breakout options. Um, it's just it's just not even close to good enough. So uh, I'm not sure you guys were expecting a rant. Um, but it, it's, it, to be honest with you guys, like as a goalie, it's been hard to watch. Like I'm an objective observer. And they are so bad defensively at times that it's frustrating to watch them hang their guys out night after night, especially a guy like Martin who waited five years to get another shot at the NHL. And he's just facing the other night in Pittsburgh. Let's put it this way. I'll give you the context. The other night in Pittsburgh, he gave up five goals. He improved his numbers relative to environment. He was plus 1.14 goals better than expected on a night where he gave up five. A lot of people talked about UC Saros' 64 save outing. Uh, the 67 shots he faced against the Carolina Hurricanes last week, the Penguins generated more expected goals and more high-danger chances against Spencer Martin in their last game against Vancouver than Carolina did with their 67 shots. That's what I talk about when I mean the quality they're giving up is, we hear a lot about grade A's, add a couple plus signs to that. It's grade A situations plus a lateral pass before it, and time and space for guys to look up, pick a spot, and make a boot. It's just, it's tough to watch, and it's why the Canucks where they are are where they are. Kevin, I hear what you're saying, and, and again, not having watched the Canucks, I mean, I'm taking your word for, for what is happening, but I'm always curious when you see interesting team plus-minus stats, and the plus-minus stat has some value. Sometimes you can only read so much into it, but when I see a huge differential within a team that always strikes me as interesting and catches my attention and based on what you're saying you would figure that everybody would be a minus player but that is not the case like you got Pedersen at plus nine you got JT Miller at minus 15 that's a differential of plus 24 so how does this jive with what you're saying like the guys who are plus what what is happening with them I should have thrown a caveat in there when I say their forwards don't defend, it's a blanket statement, and obviously some of them do. Elias Patterson is having an elite season. But he's and not the only not... one who's plus on this team. I just mentioned him because he's plus nine, but you got Kuzmenko plus seven. Luke Shen is plus five. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kuzmenko, for the most part, has played alongside Patterson, uh, and you'll see it tonight. It's usually their best line, and it's amazing because for all the focus on Kuzmenko coming over and could he adjust defensively alongside Pedersen, that hasn't been a problem. Pedersen's two-way underlying and his profile, like, it's elite. Um, you know, I think a lot of people 
know him as a dynamic offensive player. They don't see him every night. Uh, they probably think of him as that lethal one-timer on the power play, which, to be honest with you, uh, their power play has been their saving grace this season, and he hasn't even been the biggest part of it. It's, it's been more about the goal scoring of Bo Horvat in the bumper spot uh, and the amount of tips and deflections Bo Horvat, who of course they could lose um, at the end of the season as an unrestricted free agent, uh, went to work with Adam Oates over the offseason and redid his stick, uh, his stick flex, his curve, um, and sort of re-examined where he goes on the ice when he goes there and has is having an excellent offensive season. Pedersen's doing it at both ends. So um, I probably shouldn't blanket statement that none of their forwards defend. Elias Pedersen, um, and, and interestingly enough, he wasn't even used in a shutdown role, I think largely because Kuzmenko was on his wing. Early in the season, he was given sheltered minutes, uh, and they started to have success when they moved him. Actually, they didn't even move him. It was more other teams targeting him on the road for matchup roles, and he excelled in it. Um, so Pedersen, when I talk about all the problems on this team, Pedersen and Kuzmenko are not two of them. Bo Horvat's having a remarkable season. The only problem uh, it, that he brings to this team is he won't be on it for much longer. And Actually, Kuzmenko's the same way. Uh, came over late, uh, obviously, from the KHL after having a lot of success over there. It was a big win for the Canucks to land him uh, and sign him, but it's only a one-year deal. He's an unrestricted free agent after this year. So um, it's not just that they're bad. It's not just that they're this bad defensively. It's that they're a capped-out team to get there, and some of their best players may be on their way out because they can't afford to keep them. And the guy on the other side of that equation is JT Miller, who you, you obviously know well from his time in Tampa Bay, uh, who they did resign ahead of Horvat, basically made that choice in the summer, chose him over Horvat to be the first guy signed. Both would have been unrestricted free agents this upcoming summer. And he hasn't... I mean, the points last year... You didn't have to look too deep to see that that was a career year that might not be repeated. There were a lot of second assists. Um, he's actually playing at a similar level offensively. If you look at goals and primary assists to what he did last year, it's just the second assists that have kind of dried up for JT Miller. The bigger problem is they signed him and the idea being one, two, three down the middle, strength down the middle, Horvat, JT Miller, and Elias Patterson. And... JT Miller as a center just hasn't he hasn't been able to perform at the level he did last year um, and so they've played him for the most part on the wing with Pedersen of late although it looks like that might change tonight uh, and with Horvat for most of the year so when you sign a guy to a big ticket knowing it might cost you other guys to be a center and then you're know, not even into the new contract yet and he hasn't been able to sort of hold water at center that's a problem and I gotta say like the focus on him here um, I think at times has has been warranted, but a lot of, like it's been, yeah, maybe it's been disproportionately um, negative. Uh, he hasn't had, like I said, the, the points aren't there. You point to the plus minus, uh, the points aren't that bad, but it's just the focus on he, he's a, he's a lightning rod. Um, because when we talk about them not being good defensively. Uh, you know, he's a guy that wears his, his emotions on his sleeve. And so when he makes a mistake, he'll slam a stick. Uh, he'll slump shoulders. And, and sometimes he just, the first instinct should be to back check and hard. And his first is usually have a little emotional reaction before he starts that back check. And he's been caught on the wrong side of some straight-legged defensive play with no effort that has really been isolated and spotlighted and, and, and basically, you know, put him not in a very good light for a guy who, 
they made a big part of their future uh, over the summer. Um, it, it hasn't been a great start to that here for JT Miller, and he's been caught on the wrong side of the spotlight a lot this year. Like I said, at times it feels like piling on disproportionately so, and yet, as, as, as they say in hockey, the video doesn't lie. Kevin Woodley joins us here on Power Lunch on Lightning Radio. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Kevin, but I, I was following Twitter the day Vancouver was playing Pittsburgh. And Vancouver, as you know, gets out to a lead, and then Pittsburgh comes roaring back. And I, I believe, and you can clear it up because I was curious about it, you made some sort of comment about how Vancouver, it's been a, a constant issue of maybe getting into the goaltender's vision all year of, of trying to stop the puck to some extent, I think is, is where you're headed. Is that accurate? And if so, why is it happening? Well, it's not, I, I wish that I wouldn't mind that they got in the goaltender's eyes if they would actually get in the shot lane too. the problem. And I think this is where one of the few numbers where the goaltenders have actually underperformed relative to the shot quality given up is actually on the PK. Um, they have a historic, I mean, you guys have the penalty kill number in front of you. Uh, I think it's still in the 60%. It was historically bad through the first 25 games last season. Like, they're setting records for ineptitude on the penalty kill. And yet it's one of the only spots where I look at the underlying numbers and it shouldn't be that bad. And one of the things that I, I think doesn't show up, and it doesn't matter what analytics tools you're using, is when things are being, being done outside the system. Because, of course, no tool knows what the system is and what's being measured. And so what I was talking about there is they have a really bad habit of getting in the way, getting in a lane that prevents their goaltender from seeing the release, but then not actually filling that lane in terms of blocking a shot. Um, it came into, uh, it, it became a, a sort of flash topic issue recently. They went through a game where they only blocked three shots and the forwards didn't block a single one in a loss. And the coach called it out. But it's been an issue for a lot longer than that. Um, so on the PK, so I'll give you an example. On the penalty kill, if, if you've got a defensive screen in front of the goaltender, and usually defense, or sorry, offensive screen, the other team's trying to screen you, usually sets up in the middle. Um, smart teams try and push a goaltender to one side or the other, um, take him out of the middle of the net and force him to make a, decide, make a decision in terms of what shoulder he's looking over that screening player and make him move from side to side. But for the most part, if you've got a middle screen, goalie fills short side lane right like he's gonna if he has to make a choice screens in the middle as a goaltender you're almost always going to go short side for your look because that's the shortest path the puck has to the net and so if the shot if you can see the release which is priority number one then you have more time to react and push across behind that screen to a far side shot than you do a short side shot there also tends to be more bodies in the middle of the ice so more likely it's going to hit something uh, if it's shot to the far side through the middle as opposed to short side. So there's there's a general rule of thumb. Most teams subscribe to it. If you watch the number of times where they do that on the penalty kill here and the defending player is in the middle lane as well, making it harder for the goalie to see the puck, but also not filling the lane they're supposed to be in, and then also doesn't block the shot. Like, there have been some called out on social media here, some instances but if you were to go through the goals, the number of times where a player is maybe not in the right lane, but at least in a lane, but then literally will, after taking away their goalie's eyes, spin out of the way rather than blocking a shot. Um, I've had other coaches send me clips like that of this team uh, with words like disgusting. Like it's, 
it's embarrassing at times um, how unwilling some of the players are on this team to eat a puck. And, hey, it's not in everybody's DNA. Um, but if you're not going to eat it, get the hell out of the way because all they've done for the most part this year, and they've been better of late since Boudreaux called them out on that only three block shots for an entire night evening, um, they have gotten in the way more. Forwards have been more active in terms of trying to get in front of pucks. But they've got too many guys that just don't have that in their DNA. And so you you sort of couple that with everything else that's going on. And there may be some questions coaching-wise, system-wise. Are they playing the right one? There seems to be so much confusion. The amount of times where, and this is where I talked about, you know, grade A becoming A++ because of time and space. The amount of times where a Canuck defender, one guy will chase, uh, somebody misses an assignment and somebody else will chase to try and fill them in rather than staying home. And now, you know, you know what happens there pretty soon, pretty quickly, actually. Everybody's trying to do somebody else's job and nobody's doing their own. And you end up with somebody just wide open, like Canucks defenders not even on the same side of the ice as a pass comes across and a guy's sitting there. Not just time to tee it up, but time to catch it, look up, see where the goalie is and make a decision after that. It's it's a lot, and it sort of all ties into why their underlying profile is one of the worst defensive teams in hockey. Kevin, looking at the league as a whole, something we touched on at the start of the show, the the league released the numbers at the halfway point. We've seen an increase in scoring from the first quarter to the second quarter, and last year not only was scoring up, it increased in each quarter. So it increased from quarter one to two, two to three, three to four. What's going on here? Like, like, why is scoring up even beyond last year, which is proving to be not a one-off, it's continuing this year, and, and how much is goaltending tied to that? Well, can I ask you, actually, because if you have those numbers in front of you, can I ask you what the save percentage difference they didn't, was? They didn't quarter release one to quarter that, two yeah. The one that I got from the league just said 6.3 in quarter one, 6.4 in quarter two in terms of goals scored per game. Okay, top of my head, I think save percentage actually went up from quarter one to quarter two. And it was one of my pet peeves because everyone at the end of quarter one pointed to save percentage and said, it's the lowest it's been in however many years. And outside of last year, which I believe was an anomaly, and I'll share the reasons in a minute, outside of last year, pretty much every season before that, save percentage rises as the season goes on. So I'm not, believe me, I'm not pretending the goal scoring isn't up. It's clear I'm, I'm not blind. I don't put the goalie union blinders on. Um, but I do think it was a little disingenuous to everybody scream for everybody to scream about save percentage at the quarter pole being as low as it's ever been, because actually I look back three years earlier and at the quarter pole because teams are loose in the first quarter of the season. The quarter of the pole, I think three or four years ago, it was actually lower and it ended up higher. So it tends to rise as the season goes on. It didn't last year. And I think that was COVID related. 119 goalies get into games last year. In a lot of cases, five, six, and seven on the depth charts for teams. Um, instances where, you know, again, because COVID was still being tested for and guys would end out, uh, you know, on uh, in a sort of isolation protocol and not able to play. Like, you don't, the record before that, I think, was like 98. Like, we had 20-plus more goaltenders than ever before get into a game. And you extrapolate that because it was happening with defensemen and forwards. You just had a lot of guys that weren't NHL players. And where, what happens when non-NHL players are in the NHL? Usually it's systems, breakdowns. It usually cripples you on defense. So I think last year is an anomaly in terms of just how extreme it was. And yet there's no question. Offense has never been better. I just think it's not necessarily that goaltending's getting worse. I think it's more about the offense. Listen, for the last 30 years, goaltenders every summer 
went to school on their game. They worked on their tactics. They worked on their technique. They worked on their skills. They went to goalie school every summer. What did players do? Players, players got, it was like the Olympics, bigger, faster, stronger, right? Like that's what, it, there was no skills training. It's not until the last five or six years that players now actually work on their craft in terms of shooting and understanding how to create offense, how to deceive goaltenders. They go to goalie schools now. There's a few that used to. I think Zach Parise used to go to his brother, Jordan Parise, who was a goalie, goalie schools, and try and learn what goalies were trying to do so he could counter it. But that was an anomaly back in the day. And now most players have skills coaches. Most of them are working on their shot, on their release, on their skating, on their edge work, not just bigger, faster, stronger, like we saw for the 20-some-odd years that goalies got ahead of that curve. So um, the other part is, and I think analytics played a role in this. Uh, I know analytics played a role in the Washington Capitals winning and Stanley Cup using this um, in terms of understanding how goals are scored. And I mentioned the numbers I've been citing as we've talked in terms of the Canucks uh, underlying profile all come from ClearSight Analytics. And ClearSight was a big part of the Washington uh, Capitals Stanley Cup win. Like, you go back and watch that cup final, how many times the Capitals had really good players in odd man rush situations with the puck, time and space, head up, and passed across the ice rather than shooting. There were times I knew what the game plan was, and I still couldn't believe who was passing, but it worked because they understood that sometimes even in a two-on-one, if you shoot and that goalie and you're just coming in a straight line at the goalie, that's like a low – we always think every odd man rush is high percentage. Some of those are low percentage. You get that pass across the, to the guy on the other side, that's a 40% chance. That's, a, that's, that's high, high danger. And so more and more teams understand the importance of how to attack goaltending. They've got more and more skilled players. And you can talk about how fourth lines don't have grinders. They have skill and, you know, offensive defensemen. I remember Braden Holpe telling me his favorite defenseman ever to play behind in terms of defensive defenseman, trust what he's going to do, was Carl Alsner. And, like, six months later, Alsner was out of the league. Like, and so there is a, a type of player that's changed there as well. So there is more skill. There is more finishing talent all over the ice. But there's also an understanding of how to score. In the five years since the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup, the amount of offense created by plays across the slot line, so the middle of the ice from the goal line to the top of the circles, below the hash marks, what we call low slot line at Clearside Analytics or what they call low slot line, those plays across the middle of the ice and the offense generated off of it has gone up 41%. To me, there is no better indicator that teams, for the most part, there are still a few, and <clears throat> Carolina is one of them, 67 shots and you know uh, six, six expected goals, um, whereas other teams will create six expected goals out of 35 shots. But for the most part, teams are looking for quality, not quantity when it comes to shots. And to me, that 41% increase in low slot line plays, because that's the number one way to score in the National Hockey League these days, is your strongest indicator of that. Teams understand how to score. They have more players that are capable of finishing those plays uh, in all positions on the ice and all the way down the depth chart. And so goalies are going to obviously have to make steps and strides to improve. But I do think it's mostly about teams attacking better as opposed to goalies getting worse. Last question on my end. We're here with Kevin Woodley. When you take a look at Vassy, still 
still the cream of the crop from you know everything you've seen. I know you're going to chance to see him every day, but just you see a lot of other oh, goaltenders. Right. Uh, has Shesterkin closed that gap? If you were to kind of rank guys in the elite tier, has it grown from last time maybe we spoke? Yeah, no, I mean, that elite tier, I, th- I think I can't remember if I'd already if I was already including Ilya Sorokin in that tier or not the last time we spoke, but he certainly joined it. Um, you know, listen, like, is, is does Vasilevsky, who whose uh, expected save percentage, in other words, his environment has been a little tougher this year, especially early on. Um, he's still a top 10 in adjusted save percentage. He's still, I'm just updating this right now, he's fifth in goal saved above expected, which, you know, that sort of, you know, the adjusted save percentage gives you sort of your per shot or per, you know, your 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 sort of average, whereas goal saved above expected is a little more, you know, cumulative, right? So that's where the fact he's playing so much shows up. And I think that's a real big part of why I still have him as the best, because the consistency he shows while playing so much is remarkable. His adjusted save percentage right now, um, you know, it's inside the top 10, but is it at the top of the league? No. Like Linus Almark's having a better season. UC Saros has moved ahead of him in the past couple of weeks. Sorokin's slightly above him. But Shesterkin's below him, right? Like, so... The consistency, even Hellebuck, whose raw numbers are, I think, better. It's just he has a real, he has a lot better environment. He's behind Vasilevsky in terms of adjusted save percentage. So um, it's the consistency and the durability that Vasilevsky has that, to, in my mind, keeps him at the top of that list, even if we add names that are knocking at the door. Um, there's just, there's, there's such few signs of slippage in his game. Uh, and his ability to do this night in, night out over all these years at such a high level is remarkable. Listen, we had uh, Roberto Luongo uh, on the – we just – the Ingle Radio podcast just celebrated our 200th episode. And so Roberto was our guest. He was our first guest in the first one, and we had him back on for episode 200. And of all the things he accomplished in his career, you think of the gold medal win here on – in his sort of home NHL team town and all that that meant – the thing that meant the most to him, that he was most proud of in his career, wasn't a moment like that. It was the consistency. He was consistently in that 919, 920 range. Like the number he finished at, there was such little variation and, until the last, like last season when he got hurt and the year behind Torts, which was a total mismatch of goalie, goalie strength and systems play. But other than that, like it was just like so rock steady. And, and you think about, the career that he had and for him to identify that as the most important thing, I think we forget like the biggest part of the ability to be a number one is durability, the ability to be eligible for selection. Like that's huge. And Bassey does it with a level of excellence on a consistent basis that, yeah, there are names knocking at the door. UC Saros is now having a second remarkable season and maybe he joins that list. But right now, Andre Vasilevsky, because because he's so good and because he does it so often and has done it so steadily for so long, he's still the best goalie in the world in my books. Well, you're right up there in our books in terms of guests. Kevin Woodley, we appreciate you as always. Try not to get too angry tonight with the, the defense, and uh, yeah, we'll you, see how it plays out. You had to get me worked up there, eh? Just asked <laughs> about the Canucks defending, and he all fired up for the whole thing. You did, right out of the gate, that. man, right out of the <laughs> gate. But, we, hey, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks again. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. Kevin Woodley, one of the best in the business. 
educated us on Vancouver mm-hmm. and we didn't really even got get into the weeds the, there. We didn't even get into the Horvat situation, but it sounds like it's going to be partially cap-related, partially they, they kind of move their chips to the J.T. Miller side of the table, although why couldn't they yeah. keep both? I don't know. I mean, they're paying Quinn Hughes, fair enough. They have some other guys that, that are making well more than dollars a year. I understand that. I don't know. I, I I think if you have Bo Horvat on your team and he's 27 years old, you figure out a way to keep him. But that's me. I kind of agree with you. <laughs> but we might uh, – we may be in the minority. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. know. Well, he look, what Kevin talked about with – Basically, skill players trying to hone their skill as opposed to just become better athletes. It's kind of what he was saying about the offense. Even before he answered that question, he talked about Bo Horvat going to see Adam Oates and changing his stick a little bit. And like that's what we're talking about. Guys are studying how to score. How can they score more? They're educating themselves. Isn't it incredible how I think every league goes through something like that? You know, where the players adjust and mm-hmm. it just becomes real detailed and nuanced and really fascinating. But glad we were able to get Kevin on. Yeah. And we'll be back at it again. Do you want to mention quickly, Greg, because Lending had an optional skate. So Elliot was out, Vassy was not. So I would expect Vasilevsky to start. Flurry and Foot were both out there. So I would not expect either of them to be in. But Rudy Balsers was not participating in the optional skate. So we'll see yeah. who's in tonight, basically. Wonderful. Be a lot of fun. And it'll all start. Tonight at 6 o'clock with the pregame skate show, J.B. Peterson's going to be with Chief. And uh, we look forward to that conversation. I'll have the network pregame at 6.30, followed by your call with the Hall of Famer at 7. So it'll be uh, another fun night here in Tampa with the Lightning. Partner, great job as always. We'll do it again tomorrow, but I'll see you in a few. All right, see you in a few. Thanks to Steve Ersnick for all his work and Kevin Erlinson. We appreciate them. Thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to Power Lunch on Lending Radio.